You're listening to Ludophilia. I'm Richard Moss. One weekend every year, hundreds of people from around the world descend on an abandoned, half-finished resort town called Consono, which is in northern Italy, perched above Lake Como and nestled in the hills of Brianza, and about an hour's drive from Milan. Their business in Consono is not to soak in the views or go on tours of the crumbling architecture, although those are certainly nice perks that help to justify the trip. But rather, their purpose is to engage in the timeless tradition of hiding and seeking. Its organizers call it the Nascondino World Championship. It's competitive hide-and-seek, the rules formalized into a tournament structure that will crown a winning team. This year, there were around 400 participants across 80 teams including at least one from every continent besides Antarctica, plus another 200 or so spectators who were willing to brave the wettest weekend in Italy so far this year. Among them, for the first time ever, was a team of Australians. They called themselves the Nascondingos, and they paid their own way there after hearing about the competition earlier this year. Their co-captain, Alan Jones, tells me that he and his mate Stuart Dawson are in the habit of getting involved with silly, outrageous things like this just for the fun of it. We were in Darwin in 2012 and attended the Darwin Beer Can Regatta, where the locals build boats out of beer cans, and then they have a race where they paddle them um, across the water in front of the beach, about a 400-metre course. And we shot some video about that for the television networks while we were there. And... uh, got talking to the organisers and over a beer later on and said, you know, has anybody ever entered this race from outside the Northern Territory? And they told us that nobody had even entered the race from outside Darwin before. And so then we thought, you know, wouldn't it be fun to make a, a road trip documentary about bringing your boat up from Sydney to be the first team from the Big Smoke? Um, and so that project was called the Big Smoke Bottle Boat. And, and that was a similar sort of thing. That was, a, you know, Aussie Larrick and... Uh, minimal planning, just have a crack at it, and, and principal motivation was to have fun. And so when we completed that project, a lot of people asked us if we were going to go back and do it the next year, and we definitely weren't. Because although we successfully got the boat 5,000 kilometers to Darwin, entered the race, and we placed second, there were so many things that could have gone wrong along the way that would have killed the project that neither of us thought that the we'd ever have a chance of doing it twice, much less doing it successfully. And we wanted to look for new things anyway. Then one day, one of them heard the Nascondino World Championships mentioned on the radio. And uh, you know, one of us called the other and said, oh my God, there's a World Championship of hide and seek. That's our next thing. So we thought we should contact the organisers of the World Championships and find out who was behind the Australian team. You know, we assumed that there would be an Australian team and that there was probably an association of hide-and-seek players in Australia that, you know, had a, had a competition to decide who the Australian team should be. But the World Championship organisers said, no, we've, we've never had anybody from, from Australia enter. Um, as far as we know, there's no Nascondino Australia Association, so you guys should just have a go. And so that was just like a red flag to, to a bull. <laughs> we couldn't resist that opportunity. They managed to round up a team with a few Aussie expats living abroad who could cover their own travel costs more easily. 
and then off they went. No training, barely any preparation, and just a bunch of people heading off to a foreign land to have fun doing something that's not really about anything. Alan says that that was an important motivator. It's not like doing a charity challenge like the 30-hour famine or Live Below the Line or Oxfam Trail Walker, nor is it like running a marathon or a triathlon or doing some other intense physical activity that brings you social validation just from participating. Like that and doing the Darwin Beer Can Regatta or the Hide and Seek World Championships, there's a bit of envy maybe. Some of your friends are envious that, that you've gone out and done this and they haven't. But, you know, most people think I'm crazy for having done it. And, uh, and that's fine because I just, you know, there was no commercial motivation. There was no, it hasn't helped my social reputation. It's just something that we wanted to do because it's been like really fun. Um, and people say, well, how, you know, how do you find yourself in a position to do that? just to go and have fun. Um, you know, I've got a, a business and a wife and a son and a life and all that sort of thing, but I haven't let that entirely get away, in the way of having fun. In fact, I think from a relationship with my son, it's really important for him to see that you don't have to stop having fun just because you're an adult. Who would want to be an adult? You know, why would you grow up? It sounds like people have a lot of fun at the Nascondino World Championships. Most people actually camp out in the field next to the competition, where they spend their nights socialising and partying, and if they so desire, they can search for one of a series of hidden concerts scattered throughout the village over those three days. The rules are a bit different to the variants of hide-and-seek that most people in English-speaking countries grow up playing. In the conventional playground variety Nascondino that Italian children grow up with, as in this formalised version, you don't just hide and wait for the seeker to find you. Instead, you hide, and then you try to make it back to a designated spot before the seeker catches you, and in this case before a five-minute time limit runs out. It kind of becomes like a, a game of tag once you've been seen. If the seeker gets you before you reach the safe zone, you're out. There are points awarded based on who makes it back to the safe zone first. So the first player to make it back safely gets 20 points, then the next gets 19, and so on, with those who don't make it back awarded zero points. In the Nascondino World Championship, the safe zone is a beanbag. And this year it was guarded by a rotating cast of rugby players who had been invited back to be the neutral seeker team after winning the event a couple of years ago. And uh, we chose a rugby player because of the because it's a really fair sport. So they are really rude on playing, but uh, when the game is over, there is a beautiful fair play. And we decided it also because they are usually they are big and very fast. So it's useful for the players to have a, a seeker that is big so you can easily see where he, where he is. But it's also difficult because they are really fast and 
they are real athletes, so it's not easy to to win to win a, uh, a match of uh, uh, seek. That's Giorgio Moratti. He's one of the organizers of the competition. He explains that in the early years of the championship, there was less structure. But these days, they like to split teams into four equally sized groups. There's then one competitor from each team on the field per match. So this year, there were 20 people hiding per match, with, I believe, 10 matches per group. So if there are five players on a team, then everybody will play twice. At the end, the scores are tallied up to get a 20-team finalists pool for one more round of matches. And then the winner of this finalists group is presented with the championship prize, the Golden Fig Leaf. We choose the Golden Fig Leaf because, uh, you know, for history and, and Bible, the, the fig leaf was something used to hide uh, to to hide a part of a, of a man of the and the woman so we can see that it's the symbol the emblem to to hide Giorgio says that the purpose of the event is to help people rediscover the beauty and the fun of play to make people play again and he's been researching hide and seek around the world to help them do this better in the process, he's learned that hide-and-seek is actually one of the most primitive forms of play. It's a game played everywhere. Since, uh, since the dawn of time, since a uh, primitive age, uh, animals do play hide-and-seek. Why? Because uh, to hide is a survival instinct, is an animal instinct, and the game of hide-and-seek is just a way to exercise the need of fighting. Even now, far removed from our evolutionary roots on the savannah and in the jungle, hiding is still a core part of being human. We hide information, hide ideas, even hide our feelings or a key aspect of our personality or identity. But in Nascondino, we don't remain hidden. In Nascondino, the goal is to hide and then at the right moment, Break free from that hiding place and race for freedom, for the triumph and exhilaration of outwitting or outmaneuvering the seeker to the cheers of the crowd. And this sense of freedom is deeply embedded in the structure and the design of the Nascondino World Championship and its rules. If you do something which is not against the rules, it's allowed. So the rules don't cover very much, and so there's a lot of creativity and subterfuge involved. So uh, people, there was a, a discarded uh, pallet lying on the ground in a competition field that had been used to carry some equipment into the field. Somebody, and it was only about 10 feet away from where the seeker was, um, and somebody just hid under that pallet. Another person dressed up as a member of a video crew that was running around the field, pretended to be in the video crew, and then waited until the video crew walked past the safe zone. Just stripped their disguise off and they kept on that thing. So they, they moved the um, that safe zone, the big beanbag, they'll move that around the playing field during the course of the day so that it takes that takes away the advantage that some hiding spots have and then makes some other hiding spots more advantageous. So you're always thinking about, you know, each hiding spot has, it's at a particular angle to the 
safe zone. So that changes the amount of cover that hiding spot might give you. A hiding spot that's high enough that you that you can crouch behind or stand behind is is better than one that you have to lie down because then you save you know another half a second getting up and starting to run. But there were also there were people who there were some trees on the, on the boundary of the playing field and and a few people did well by hiding behind those trees. So you're allowed to actually hide outside of the playing field if if you think that gives you an advantage. And often. The, the, the seeker has to go in the opposite direction to you to go and clear out some other part of the playing field and then you can, you know, as soon as their back is turned or once they've turned their back and taken a few paces in the opposite direction, then maybe then you make a sprint for And other, other players may not be able to see the seeker, so they may be waiting to see somebody else run and, and they'll be thinking, okay, well, if that person's running, I should run too because they can clearly see the seeker in my car. There are a couple of old uh, portaloos used as as obstacles on one of the playing fields. Obviously, you could hide inside a portaloo, but then you would have no idea where the seeker was. So one guy got inside the portaloo and took his mobile phone with him, and his teammates were ringing him up and telling him where the seeker was. So then that worked really well. There's only one player from each team on the paddock at a time. So after a while, we started to do what some of the other teams do, and that was shout out advice to each other. And because there's so much audience interaction that it's not like the seeker can can really hear what you're shouting. You know, you have to be listening out for your teammates to really hear what's being shouted at you. So that works pretty well. That was, But that was about as far as we got. They give you a, a four-minute warning when there's only one minute left. And, and if you're stuck out there hiding with only one minute left, then the seeker's job is relatively easy. They can come back close to the safe zone and wait for you to make a break for it. You know, you've got to weigh up in your own mind, should I try and hide close to where the safety zone is and, and try and make a break for it as soon as the seeker lifts up his head or am I going to hide and wait until the last few minutes and maybe make a run and maybe I'll only get eight or ten points but maybe I'll stand a better chance that way. You know, the seeker progressively gets tired and tighter because they're having to sprint out and sprint back, sprint out and sprint back. So maybe you want to wait until he's tired a bit, give you a better chance. Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways you can play it. You can cheat too, yeah. <laughs> the umpires, you know, dressed in black and white, like sort of uh, basketball uh, referees, every time somebody was caught out, uh, the umpires would lead the crowd in lifting their arms and shouting, uh, ciao! <laughs> And uh, if somebody made it home, uh, they also lifted their arms and everybody shouted, Libero! So freedom. And also sometimes, so the, the safe zone, the big beanbag, um, that you have to try and make your way back to. Uh, that's called La Topa. Um, and so sometimes when somebody would make it back safe, um, we'd all raise our arms and shout, Viva La Topa! Which much later on, and so we adopted that as our um, team rally cry. And so we were shouting it in airports and restaurants and all sorts of things. And then later on, I team member wondered, you know, what it actually means. And so Googled it and turns out it's a, um, uh, a slang term for vagina. So we were in airports shouting, hooray for vagina. With a 24th place overall finish, the Australian team did remarkably well, considering they had no idea what they were doing. We literally never played before and had no strategy. And we didn't have a chance to watch other teams play before we took the field. I, I think it was it was 
it was usually the case that most of the teams, each individual player, had their own way that they were going to do this. You know, if you, if you, if you're a fast sprinter, then then you'll count on your sprinting speed. If you're a devious hider, you'll you'll count on your ability to stay hit. Although it's a team sport, I think each each individual will have talents that that lend themselves to to this sport. The uh, the Italian teams clearly play a lot of it. So Italian teams came for second and third this year. But last year, one of the American teams won. So it's not like the Italians totally dominate the sport. Giorgio explains that, as with any physical game, the athletic players have a distinct advantage. But even though most men are more athletic than most women, he believes that most teams benefit from a gender balance. Right, because uh, men usually are uh, faster, but women are really more strategic and also more little, so they hide better. Um, a team made by men and women is a complete team. It's a team with, a, uh, with all, the ski- all the skills needed by uh, an identical team. The idea of a team representing Australia in the hide-and-seek world championships has caught on big time in the local media. Midway through my interview with Owen, he had to step away to take a media call. The Nascondingos were set for an appearance on one of Australia's two big breakfast TV shows, The Today Show, the next day. Their competitive hide-and-seek exploits have been covered in one form or another in nearly every newspaper and radio station in the country. And it's not just the media. That love it. It's really fun to walk through um, Sydney Airport in a green and gold tracksuit with an Australian flag on and the words World Championship Team on the, on the back of your jersey because people want to know, you know, what sport are you competing in, what team are you a member of? And you say, hide and seek. And they go, no. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a World Championship. No. And then the next question for nearly everybody is, how do I get involved? Like, how do I play? Where do I go? You know, so you have to explain, or you don't have to, but you generally end up explaining how different the sport is to the hide and seek that most Australians know. But it seems like most Italians have been playing hide and seek this way since forever. I think what really makes this story resonate with so many people is that it's so pure. It comes back to that motivation thing. You don't participate in a hide-and-seek world championship for social credit or financial rewards. People are as likely to think you're insane as to hail your awesomeness. And you'll learn loads more dough anyway if you hide-and-seek shares on the stock exchange rather than play this silly game in a field next to a crumbling old ghost town. The only reason to participate in Nascondino is to have fun, to find something novel and different. In a world that tries so hard to force us into being serious and mature all the time, to steadily tick off the next item on the list of things you must achieve to be a successful, well-adjusted adult. Nascondino is gleefully immature and all about the experience. Nascondino is about rediscovering the joy and the liveliness of play, just for play's sake. We have pets that we love because they play, you know. If you've got a pet cat or a pet dog, 
you take your dog down the park and the dog plays and that kind of lifts your spirits a bit, makes you a little bit happy. And But you don't allow yourself the same opportunity to do that. That seems nuts. There was an episode uh, of this podcast that I did quite a while ago with this lady who's uh, 60-something. And she was telling me how she had basically forgotten how to play. Uh, she had not played since she was a little girl. But then one day she tried Second Life out and she stumbled across these two guys who were doing a search and rescue operation in Second Life, which is ridiculous because in Second Life, nobody needs to be saved. If you're in, if you're in danger, you just press a button and you teleport somewhere else. So these guys were play acting pretending to rescue people and she thought that was so delightful and she started participating in their activities and she rediscovered play as a 60-something woman and it changed her life. That's very, very cool. That's very cool. Well, my son and I, um, uh, we got into uh, a game, a card game called Exploding Kittens. <laughs> Great name. Yeah, and, and uh, there's now a, a second one in the series called Bears versus Baby. And uh, a lot of the fun. Have you ever played Cards Against Humanity? Yeah. Yep. So, so this is a this is a game series kind of on a, on a similar sort of premise, the sort of ideologically unsound card games. And, uh, and I, I think that's an important principle behind most forms of play as well that we don't allow ourselves to explore. You know, we, we put on this mask and says, you know, the ideology that I live with exists all the time and there are all these big topics that are sacred and can't be made fun of you know and that's bullshit <laughs> so it's really good every now and again to allow yourself to to explore that in a safe place with consenting adults that won't be offended so yeah that's, I think that's you know it's not a big part of my life but it's a part of my life you know? I want to be able to take the piss out of things and people without getting shut down. A very Australian thing to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, actually speaking of exploring, um, so this uh, Dascondino World Championship is held in or next to Ghost Town. Did you get a chance to look around that that town? Yeah, we did. We did. We had a, a, a guided tour where somebody who was an expert on the history of the place took all of the competitors and spectators around one afternoon and told us, you know, what the buildings were and and, uh, and how the how and why the place had been built. So the I don't know if you read much about that, but there was a there was a village on the side of this hill and an eccentric Italian duke decided that, that what the new Italian middle classes needed after um, the economic recovery of Italy after World War Two uh, was uh, an Italian version of Las Vegas and he decided he was the guy to build it. So he bought a whole little village and all of the surrounding farmland off the villages and sort of moved them to one side. And uh, he owned a lot of building construction companies in Italy and had sort of mafia connections and stuff. So he, he got started without a lot of oversight from government or, or certifying authorities. And he had appalling taste in architecture. So he built some truly, truly ugly buildings. Uh, and the place became 
place where Italians could go and gamble, and there was some prostitution there apparently, and, and you know, nightclubs and dancing and stuff. But a landslide cut the only access road to the place when, when it had been operating for only a few years. The landslide happened in 1976, just eight years into Consinor's new life as a resort town, and it thwarted his plans to add a zoo, a small racetrack, and various sports fields to it. And by the time they got the road open again, it was kind of too late, and uh, it had lost its cool, lost its mojo. So the um, eccentric uh, Italian duke, Count uh, Bagno, lived there for the rest of his life, alone with his dog, and did tours for visitors and talked about you know, how, it, how he'd been misunderstood and, and uh, Italians lacked confidence and vision. And he uh, eventually died, I think, in the early 90s. But, but since then, since, since he passed away, there's a, there's a caretaker family that lives on, in one corner of the town, and the rest of the town is just kind of, kind of open. So people have sort of outlaw raves there periodically and the local teenagers obviously hang out there to, to um, do their graffiti and, and, and uh, take drugs and have sex. But really, you know, the rest of the time it's really just the, uh, the hide-and-seek world championships occupying the place. So it, it's, it's, it, it felt a bit like the Russian village of Pripyat that was uh, evacuated after Chernobyl. And so it was, it was really interesting just to walk through because it's all accessible. Some of it's very, very dangerous, but it's all accessible. Just, just to walk through and, and imagine what it must have been like to be there in the, in the 50s and 60s. And, uh, and it's now just completely empty. You just hear the wind and uh, the occasional clunk as something falls off a wall or a bit of roof collapses. The Nascondino World Championship is currently the only formalised Nascondino game in the world. Although there are plans in motion to expand into a network of smaller national and regional tournaments that might one day become like qualifiers for the World Championship. There's always been a, a really good participation from France and uh, we are trying to do a France Championship. We are also trying to do a Portuguese championship, and uh, probably we will do something also in Australia. The Nascondinos, Alan's team, will be involved in that. Nascondino has really gelled with them, and now they're keen not only to come back again, possibly with a second Australian team joining them, but also to introduce the sport to everyday Australians, to host demonstration games around the country, to see if they're be an interest in a yearly national championship. It won't be terrible. I don't think it'll be too hard to stage those, and then it's just a question of where we go from there. You know, is there enough interest in this that you could have something? You know, uh, there's, there's some some league running, you know, for a few months of the year each year, and then actually select the best team rather than a bunch of misfits that just want to go. Actually, ideally, it would be best if you had both. So, of the 79 teams, I'd say there were probably 30 of the teams were Italian teams. And most of them just seem to be groups of friends, you know, groups of friends from work, groups of friends from uni, groups of friends from soccer team or another sporting team. So I'd love to see a lot of Australians get up and get behind it next year and have a crack because it really, it just it sits very well with Australia's you know ability to not take itself too seriously and to go all out for a brief moment of time and then be very laid back and relaxed and laugh at other people. 
you know, that, that, that's Candino and Australian culture seems to me to work really, really well. You can follow the Nascondingos on facebook.com slash the Nascondingos and on Instagram and Twitter at Nascondingos. Although Alan mentioned that Facebook seems to be the one that's caught on the most. So take that one as your home base. They also have a website at the imaginative domain name nascon-dingo.sexy. That's N-A-S-C-O-N hyphen D-I-N-G-O dot sexy. And you can find out more about the Nascondino World Championship via its Facebook page, facebook.com slash Nascondino World Championship, or its website, nascondinoworldchampionship.com. Giorgio also has this message for you. Well, I wanted to say that uh, to, to your audience that we we really want to unite the world in a simple and powerful game. So we invite all the people that agree with our philosophy, that are curious, participate, and first of all, the people who is willing to to have fun, to participate, to follow us on, on the Facebook page, Nascondino World Championship, and just to follow us because um, the World Championship will be in Italy but as I told you, there will be some possibilities to be also around the world. And uh, so that's like a, a claim, <laughs> just like an announcement. People, if you want to have fun, follow Nascondino World Championship. Our aim is to let you have fun as much as you can. Ludophilia is produced by me, Richard Moss. I made... Most of the music for this episode too, but it also includes bits from Chris Zabriskie, Lee Rosevere, and Kai Angle. Most Ludophilia episodes take some 30 or 40 hours to produce through interviewing, transcribing, scripting, editing, mastering, sound design, music composition and sequencing, and any final layers of polish at the end. It's a labor of love. But it can be hard to find all the time. Outside of my freelance work and my other projects, like my book, which is coming out in a few months. And I really want to get these episodes out with more regularity. So if you enjoy the show, you can help me out by leaving a review on iTunes, which might push us up the podcast rankings, sharing your favorite episodes with your friends and followers and anyone else. And if you can afford it, donating a little bit of money. You can make a one-time or a monthly donation via PayPal. There's an orange button at the bottom of my website, ludophilia.net. You hit that button, you can decide how much you want to donate and whether you want it to be a recurring donation. And you can also commit to a monthly donation at Patreon. The Patreon comes with access to episode transcripts as a bonus. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported me so far. You are the reason I'm still doing this. And the reason that I continue to hold faith that eventually I will figure out a way to make this show a successful thing that helps to 
open people's eyes to the importance, joy, and wonder of play in its many, many forms, and to try to cover all of those many, many forms. Because really, play is so much broader a topic than most people give it credit for. And I'm excited about where we could take Ludophilia as the show continues to grow and mature. And some of you may already know this, but I now have two podcasts. A few months ago, I launched a video game themed show that I'd been planning for over a year. It's called The Life and Times of Video Games. I like to describe it as short audio documentaries about video games and the video game industry as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. It's got a fairly similar style to Ludophilia, albeit less experimental and not as prone to what you might call intellectual wanderings that we do here in nearly every episode. And it's got a shorter standard episode length and a more consistent, more focused structure. If you're into games history at all, be sure to check it out. I will almost certainly be back in January, probably towards the end of the month, with a new episode of Ludophilia. In the meantime, I'll leave you with an excerpt from the most recent episode of The Life and Times of Games to give you a taste of what that's like. Have a great holiday. See ya. And many of the people making those cracks would insert a custom intro into the ROM file. They were kind of like a, a hacker's signature. They were basically a way for hackers to sign their work. Very rudimentary stuff, but just the, the ability to see something like that on a game really kind of twisted me for a loop. I was like, how did these guys do it? And you, you just go digging. Steve scoured what little there was of an internet at the time and gathered enough crumbs to be able to stumble his way into self-learning the requisite skills. He learned hex editing and got into machine language and he picked up Z80 assembly so that he could write programs on his TI-85 calculator. He felt compelled to learn the base level first, to learn how to program machines down to the guts, the bare metal like they did on computers in the 1970s and 80s, and like they were still doing with console games in the mid-1990s. He thought that's what the cool people could do. They don't need C or Pascal or any of the higher level languages, because they can use machine language. And machine language runs faster. And that's what got me interested in, in, in ROM hacking, uh, just being able to really be curious and then to pursue a knowledge of exactly what a computer is doing. And, and I think my first stuff was just, it was marking the, the NES headers of ROMs because we'd be releasing ROMs. Uh, and I put the Demiforce, that was my group, the Demiforce header inside the NES, the first, I think, 16 bytes of the file. It's the first stuff in it because I was like, I'm, you know, I, I get to look cool, and then it's not a, it's very low hanging fruit. So I was like, we do that. And as it turned out, uh, the header format changed, where you uh, those bytes ended up being used by the header itself and years uh, that came after because of the mapper expansion. 
and I got in deep shit for that. So that was, I think, my first and uh, foremost foray into into uh, having absolutely no idea what I was doing. <laughs> but it was something. And I, after that, I think it was just, you know, I think it was just we we were all into it. My friend uh, Typhoon Z, he ran this site. I want to think it was called Archaic Ruins, I think. And we were all just screwing around with stuff. And, and I think, I want to say I gained awareness of the Final Fantasy ROMs that had not been released in America. These days, there are multiple editions of every Final Fantasy game available in pretty much every country in the world. But back then, things were kind of weird. Whereas in Japan, Final Fantasy 1, 2, and 3 had all been released on the Famicom, then 4, 5, and 6 were on the Super Famicom. In North America, there was only Final Fantasy 1 on the Nintendo Entertainment System. And then 4 and 6 had come out on the Super Nintendo. But the publisher covered up that fact by renaming those other two. So what was Final Fantasy 2 in the United States was actually Final Fantasy 4. And what was Final Fantasy 3 in the United States was actually Final Fantasy 6. And the real second and third entries were sort of swept under the rug. Not because they were bad, just because nobody thought they would be palatable to an American audience. These missing entries developed a kind of mythical status. Most Americans who had heard of them weren't exactly sure if they were real. It was all fables and rumours, just vague information reaching them indirectly, third, fourth, fifth hand, often via a friend of a friend's dad or uncle who had visited Japan and maybe they saw it in a shop window or a magazine or something. And it was then passed along with the usual lack of precision you'd expect from a game of telephone. And, and the discovery of these ROMs and just being able to play it, even if these shitty little emulators like, like Puzzle Family would just run the first bit and then crash. It was, just, it was so cool because you're suddenly on the other side of something. You know, you'd seen through the Matrix, you know, and instantly the curiosity went into like, how can I play this better? What, what emulators are out there? Let me play this better. And can I understand it better? I majored in Japanese in school. I have a degree in Japanese. Strictly, fueled strictly by the, the the need to play these stupid little games, <laughs> and uh, that led me into wanting to translate it. it. Just it was, you know, it it was like I said, I always felt like I was born too late. And you know, it, at my high school, if you don't, if you're not in the basketball team, you know, you get into computers. And and this, I felt that was my my calling. You know, my my way to get into this. 